This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. I want you to get mad. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome, friends. And that's it. Welcome, friends. I'm going to dispense with the usual uh, opening pleasantries and get right to it. We're two days away from the 12th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, and I just read or finished reading a book, and I want the whole world to know about it. And so we're going to dedicate the next hour uh, to discussing the contents of The Big Bamboozle. My next guest, or my first guest, Philip Marshall, is a veteran airline captain, former government special activities contract pilot. He's authored three previous books on top-secret America. And his latest, as I just mentioned, is The Big Bamboozle, 9-11 and the War on Terror. Time is tight. The information here is so compelling, so important, so let's get right to it. Philip, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hey, good evening, Richard. How are you? Terrific, thank you. And it was a delight meeting you in Santa Monica a couple of weeks back and a real eye-opener. Yes. Let me uh, begin uh, by saying this. I, um, I finished the book, and I, again, I think it's important that uh, everyone within earshot uh, get a copy. Not that uh, you know, we're, not that I, I normally promote books to this extent, but I think you've really nailed this one. Uh, like a lot of people, I got distracted with the whole controlled demolition uh, aspect of this unsolved crime, and now after reading your book, Philip, I am convinced that that is a huge distraction, uh, maybe by design. I'm not sure, but. Um, a lot of the information, uh, the, uh, the I mean, this is the, 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 the world's biggest unsolved crime, and a lot of the information that solves it is contained in a report that was uh, issued by the Congressional Joint Inquiry, something that most people have never heard of, fewer have even read. Tell me about the Congressional Joint Inquiry. When, when was it formed, and, and, and who were its um, leaders? Yeah, it was uh, it was right after the attacks. Actually, uh, in two thousand and two, the inquiry was formed over the objections of the Bush White House, and um, Senator Bob Graham, who was the head of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence uh, for the Senate, was the head of that inquiry. Uh, 
And, um, you know, they did a 10-month investigation into it. They were able to find FBI documents, you know, that showed that the FBI agents had, had been following the 9-11 hijackers and that they had been in contact in, in close, uh, uh, continuous contact with uh, Saudi Arabian uh, intelligence agents who were acting as their, uh, as their guides through America. Uh, you know, they, they landed in, um, I mean, the inquiry report is, is fascinating. Uh, it shows that the hijacker, two of the hijackers had landed in Los Angeles back in uh, January, on January 15th to be precise, of uh, 2000 and were soon met by Saudi agents who were connected to my area of expertise, which is the training of the of the hijackers on the on the Boeing airplanes. Uh, the the uh, uh, Bob Phil uh, uh, Bob Graham rather, uh, yeah. who led the inquiry. He was joined by a couple of top notch congressional investigators. Tell me about them. Yeah, there was uh, one. Eleanor Hill was a. Uh, a, a veteran congressional investigator and another guy named Jake Jacobson, who uh, who was also a F, former FBI uh, agent, and he had turned um, into an investigator. He he investigated it for for the Congress also. And as you as you point out, you have two FBI's in this in this scenario. You have the field agents who are trying desperately to avert or avoid uh, catastrophe. And then you have this other FBI with asterisks beside it. Explain the difference between the field agents and this other FBI uh, FBI headquarters, I believe you referred to them as. Yeah, well, the, the FBI field agents were following the hijackers. They, had, um, they were looking for them. And then uh, headquarters, basically, um, which was, you know, being run out of the George Bush Center for Intelligence, um, you know, every time they sent up, you know, hey, we, we, we found these guys out training, you know, later on in, in the investigation, um, the hijackers were out in the desert in Arizona uh, training to fly Boeing airplanes, and the FBI field agents actually sent up a message to headquarters, hey, we found these guys out here. We believe they're up to no good. We believe they're doing some sort of a terrorist operation. And, um, you know, they sent the warnings up to Washington, and when they got there, they, they literally disappeared. Now, before we get into uh, a lot of the substance here, which, again, uh, draws, uh, connects the dots, really, between the, the royal house of Saud, members of the royal family uh, of Saudi Arabia and the 9-11 terrorist, uh, terrorists uh, and this national security state that you're beginning to describe. Um, let me ask you why we haven't heard about the Congressional Joint Inquiry. If it was um, uh, you know, struck in, in 2002 and you had uh, Senator Bob Graham leading this and investigators, uh, this is before the 9-11 Commission. Why didn't we hear about this? Why didn't the mainstream media report about this inquiry? Yeah, well, it was Dick Cheney's work. Uh, Dick Cheney actually called Bob Graham on the phone and told him to basically put a lid on it and, um, you know, that if he 
tried to reveal any of the stuff that they ended up redacting in that report, which was 28 pages worth, that they would face charges of leaking classified information. So they, they threatened him with jail if he was to release any of this information to the, to the media or to the public. And then Bob Graham would later, a couple of years later, write his own book. Uh, I believe it was entitled Security Matters. Did he divulge this information in that book? Yes, he, he, he went into great detail, you know, and, and he made a, a bunch of great points, you know, one, one being that, you know, hey, if it would be so difficult, you know, say you and I, Richard, decided we're going to go to Russia and do some sort of a, uh, a you know, aerial assault like this in a, in a big operation, you know, how, how difficult would it really be, you know, for, for them to detect us in their country trying to pull off some sort of an attack like this. But as we look at this, there were, you know, there were at least 20 people involved in the, in the direct conspiracy. And, um, you know, the people behind the, the scenes who were training these uh, hijackers to become pilots, you know, to fly a mission that lasted about 30 minutes long, you know, you know, it, it really gets, it really is almost impossible to think that, you know, that these guys could have been in the country training, you know, for this big mission. You know, we went, we know where they went at the beginning. They went to Florida for their initial, you know, basic training in small airplanes. And then later on, you know, in 2001, they all moved to the, they all moved to the desert and started flying these, you know, uh, learning how to fly these Boeing uh, airplanes that they were that was that was used in the attacks. Uh, let me remind listeners: Philip Marshall, a veteran airline captain, is with us and uh, uh, has led a comprehensive ten-year study into the tactical plan used by the 9/11 hijackers, and is the leading aviation expert on the September 11th attack. Uh, let me just set the table here uh, for those just joining us, Philip. So, uh, you believe that, uh, and and the congressional uh, joint inquiry. Uh, tends to suggest that this was an inside job. It was carried out in part by the the uh, the hijackers, but there was obviously participation within the U.S. administration. Yes, someone you know the the, the entire mission was was carried out by the Saudi Arabian intelligence uh, agency. And, you know, the 9-11 um, joint inquiry said that, you know, they were Saudi spies that had seemingly unlimited funds from Saudi Arabia. They knew where they were getting the money from. They, they tracked down the bank accounts, and they were able to find, you know, that they had shared bank accounts with some of the top people in the Saudi monarchy, including uh, this Prince Bandar bin Sultan was, um, you know, he, I, I believe that he was the initial mastermind and then they later on farmed out, you know, the actual attack and the execution to the former Saudi intelligence chief, uh, a guy named uh, Prince uh, Turkey Al-Fazl, who they found, you know, he left Las Vegas, you know, in the same desert, you know, just a few days after the attacks with 100 men, you know. So they had a pretty big logistical and tactical team on the ground operating in the U.S., and I believe that, you know, they could not have been operating here without some sort of protection from our 
intelligence community. Uh, you, you, you point out that uh, Bandar al-Sultan is, is um, or at least you, you, you were describing this to me when we were in Santa Monica together, that, uh, that he is so close uh, to the Bush family that he's known as Bandar Bush. Yes, and, you know, before 9-11, I was actually studying the Iran-Contra uh, affair that I was involved in back in the 80s, and his name came up as a financier in the illegal arming of the Nicaraguan Contras. You know, so the Bush, uh, the Bush-Cheney-Saudi uh, connection goes way back. It goes back at least 30 years to when... You know, these guys have worked together on several covert missions together. Now, Bandar was, at the time, the ambassador to Washington, was he not? That is correct. And, yeah. you know, we found, I mean, he met Donald Rumsfeld in, I have a picture of him on our Facebook page. The, our Facebook page is called The Big Bamboozle, and uh, it's a good place to go. That's where we put we post a lot of our uh videos and a lot of the media coverage that we believe is is nonsense and then we will rebut the you know the postings that the media makes but um you know bandar is you know he he is really <laughs> he goes back along he, he goes along back a long way with the, with the bush uh family when we come back uh, we'll also talk about uh, I believe checks that were signed by Bandar's wife and where they ended up. We'll connect the dots here. The Big Bamboozle author, Phil Marshall, veteran airline captain, former government special activities contract pilot, and the author of The Big Bamboozle, 9-11 and the War on Terror. Don't you dare go way back with more. Stay with us. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Okay, so let's say one group of people, like the American people, pay you $400,000 a year to be President of the United States. But then another group of people invest in you, your friends, and their related businesses $1.4 billion over a number of years. Because that's how much the Saudi royals and their associates have given the Bush family, their friends, and their related businesses in the past three decades. Is it rude to suggest that when the Bush family wakes up in the morning, they might be thinking about what's best for the Saudis instead of what's best for you or me? Poking Holes in the Darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Uh, that clip you heard um, was from Michael Moore's documentary, Fahrenheit 9-11. Not a huge Michael Moore fan, but I think at least he came close to getting at the truth. Wouldn't you agree, Phil? Yeah, he was on the right track for sure. Um, you know, the, the missing link here to all the, you know, the, these theories uh, with the Saudis is, is what I was investigating, and, and that is basically the nuts and bolts of 9-11, you know, how they actually executed the attack, how they actually trained the hijackers, how they actually flew the mission, you know, um, how, how they prepared for it, how they, 
um, you know, how they started, you know, years in advance. This thing, you know, there's there's another group called the Project for a New American Century. I bet you've heard of that. Oh, yes. And um, they, you know, they basically wrote the blueprint for the post-9-11 world, which was to invade the Middle East and to pretty much clamp down on, you know, American society. Um, you know, you can look at this as the the central intelligence has has basically taken over the United States government. They've changed their name to the United States Intelligence Community. They're based at the George Bush Center of Intelligence in Langley, Virginia. And they now control 16 of our most powerful agencies in Washington. And, um, you know, those include the Department of Homeland Security, you know, DHS, the TSA, Transportation Security Agency, the CIA, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, the Department of Justice, the Department of Defense, and here's the big one, the United States Treasury, where over $15 trillion have disappeared from our Treasury since the 9-11 attack. So this is a coup d'etat. It's the second coup d'etat. First, they took the executive branch over in 63 in Daly Plaza, and then I guess the remaining important uh, um, uh, departments uh, with 9-11. Phil Phil Marshall is with us, the author of The Big Bamboozle. I I mentioned before the break, uh, Prince Bandar, member of the Saudi royal family, was the ambassador to Washington, D.C. during 9-11. His wife, did she not write checks to the, the terrorists? Yeah, well, they they had a joint bank account at the Riggs Bank in Washington that was in business, I think, since eighteen eighteen thirty or so, you know, way back before the you know before the Civil War even, you know, and uh, this was a big Washington powerful bank, and you know she had an account there, and so did Bandar himself, and then the hijackers, the people who were uh, supporting the hijackers were harboring the hijackers on the west coast also had a bank account at that same bank and there was transfers that the congressional joint inquiry found that went from her bank account directly to the people who were aiding the hijackers so i mean this is not conspiracy theory folks this is the these are the findings of the congressional joint inquiry which was largely ignored muzzled uh, by uh, Dick Cheney, even uh, now, did Cheney not sick the FBI to investigate the uh, the members of the inquiry? Yeah, according to Graham's book, uh, you know, he wrote a book called Intelligence Matters, and um, you know, he described how you know they were threatening, you know, the, the investigators, the congressional staff, and everything with lie detector tests, with all kinds of, you know, intrusive. Uh, you know, interrogations and just threaten them, and they muzzled them into silence. And that's exactly what uh, Senator Graham said. They were muzzled into silence by Dick Cheney. Now, the the Saudi uh, agent that that met uh, at least two of the hijackers, I believe, in in San Diego. Uh, tell me about this individual. Yeah, well, this guy was named Omar Al Bayoumi, and he was a um, he was a Saudi national living in the United States, living living in San Diego. And on uh, just a couple of days after the hijackers had landed in, in Los Angeles, he drove up to the Saudi embassy and met behind closed doors at the Saudi embassy and left uh, 
that meeting and, and went directly to a, a small restaurant in Los Angeles where the hijackers were waiting. And he, now the thing that I found really interesting about him was he was the guy that I was looking for because when I put the, uh, I began my research by putting together the attack. I recreated the attack. I recreated the times that they departed, how they flew the mission, what kind of air, you know, aviation uh, skills were needed to fly this mission. And I determined that they had definitely had contact with Boeing experts. And this guy, Omar Bayumi, was working for a company called Dalla Avco out of on the West Coast. But they were based in Saudi Arabia, and they had Boeing aircraft that they had underneath their uh, under their certificate. So this was my aviation expert that I was looking for, and he was he wasn't an aviation expert, but he led them to the company that had training materials, had simulators, had all the you know all the things that you would need to you know train the hijackers, and I'm sure he had access to. Uh, Arabic-speaking flight instructors for the Boeing aircraft. Omar Al Bayoumi. This is he's he was an is an employee of the Saudi Civil Aviation Authority. Right. And he met these hijackers. Now, this again is co- according to the Congressional Joint Inquiry. Yes. He was someone that the FBI were very interested in speaking to. Yes. What happened when the inquiry tried to speak to this individual? Well, they actually served him a subpoena, or, or they, they wrote up a subpoena, and um, the FBI headquarters and the, the Bush White House refused to serve him the subpoena. Why? They didn't give a reason. They just said... <laughs> you cannot interview this individual. Yeah. This so. is someone who had contact with at least two, perhaps three hijackers prior to the 9-11 attacks, had repeated meetings with them, and the inquiry was told by the FBI, by Dick Cheney, don't you dare speak to this individual. That's correct. That's correct. And, and the most interesting one is, is the, uh, the, the, the eventual pilot hijacker for American 77, a guy named Hanny Hanjour. This is the one that hit the Pentagon. This is the one that yeah, flew into the Pentagon. That's the one that hit the Pentagon. Exactly. And he flew into town um, into San Diego um, you know, the day after Bush was declared president by the Supreme Court. And soon after, within the next week, all three of them left the San Diego area, and that's when they went out into the deserts in Arizona and began to train for the mission. Now, we need to spend some time uh, discussing how this was pulled off, because as you point out in The Big Bamboozle, Everything we knew about Al-Qaeda, if there is an Al-Qaeda, up until this point, up till this point, was all about car bombs and, and, uh, you know, shoe bombs and and pretty awkward, clumsy attempts to bring down airliners. Now, all of a sudden, we're led to believe that they're capable of something far more complex. I mean, exponentially more complex, bringing down uh, or bringing the the most sophisticated uh, military uh, and defense mechanism ever known to man to its knees. It just doesn't. It doesn't add up. Oh, it, it's it's absolutely impossible to suggest that these guys, the ones that, and and, and the thing is, is that there's no evidence. In, when you when you read over the real evidence in this case, the facts are all point to the Saudi 
operation. And to suggest that some guy that's living in a cave without electricity was the guy that defeated all U.S. national security is, is, is preposterous. However, and, I, and I, I asked you this in Santa Monica, because up until I, I read your book, Phil, I part of me still believe that, it, it, that uh, those buildings may have been brought down in part by controlled demolition or some other, some other device, uh, that, it, that it wasn't possible, for example, for Honey Honjor to maneuver um, Flight 77 into the Pentagon and, and, and hit it that way. But, but you say it is, I mean, you're, you're speaking as a veteran commercial airline pilot, the things that they did on 9-11, those, those, those hijackers, it is possible with the right training. Oh, absolutely. And, and um, you know, I, I've flown the patterns, you know, in the simulator that they flew. Now, the most difficult one was the one that hit the Pentagon. You know, he, he began, he, he didn't take over the airplane. And I, I point this out in the book, you know, how the errors that they made. I believe that they meant to take that airplane over a lot earlier, but they didn't, for some reason, they didn't take the airplane over until it was almost 300 miles to the west of Washington. I think the initial plan was to take it around 70, 80 miles, something like that. So there, there was some kind of a, a malfunction going on with the, with the hijacking that they didn't take the airplane over when they should have. So it, it really exposed a lot of errors, and it, it really exposed who was behind it because, you know, all that time that it took them to fly, I mean, they were flying for 40 minutes you know, at 500 miles an hour straight, you know, while the country was under attack, you know, something that would look like a missile on a radar, you know, a 500-mile-an-hour object coming straight at, at the nation's capital, um, it really exposed them. But to, to see the way he flew that airplane, you know, he turned it around, you know, he descended, he took the autopilot off for a while, he put it back on, he came down to 9,000 feet over Dulles Airport, you know, and this is 30 minutes into after they took over the airplane, and supposedly, you know, NORAD didn't see this, this missile coming right at, at Washington, and he disconnected the autopilot, he came down to about 7,000 feet, he did a very advanced uh, right descending turn, you know, this is all on the on the black box recordings, the FAA radar, NTSB reports that I was able to, to get. And, um, you know, he, 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 he rolled out about 2,500 feet, uh, about four miles to the west of the Pentagon, pushed up the throttles all the way to, to the firewall, basically, and, and, and nosed the airplane down and hit the Pentagon at an incredible speed. 480 knots indicated, which for that airplane at that altitude, the red line is at about 350 knots. So, I mean, this guy really did some phenomenal flying. But like I said, this guy had time in airplanes before. He had a commercial uh, pilot's license for smaller single-engine airplanes. But definitely he could have been trained up easily to to that level of flying, but it would take many, many practice sessions to get that type of proficiency. And uh, and uh, of, of American Airlines uh, 11 and United Airlines 175 that hit the North and South Towers, uh, likewise, those maneuvers, could, you could do that if you had enough training? Oh, absolutely. I mean, these are normal procedures. I mean, 
they're, they're procedures that we practice in the simulator all the time. Basically, uh, 175, the one that we've all seen that hit the South Tower. So, you know, he was over New Jersey at 31,000 feet and, you know, basically did a, what we call a, a high dive, which is, you know, in case you, you know, blow out your uh, pressurization, we practice this all the time where you, you know, throttles off, spoilers out, you just let the airplane dump down. How know. would they know exactly where to hit it to cause the buildings to collapse? Well, I think he was trained to hit, you know, at a certain point where you were out of the range of the water cannons. And then, you know, if you, know, if you look, you know, people say, well, you know, a missile or, or whatever. But, look, a, a Tomahawk missile weighs 2,500 pounds. It's not a very big missile. A, a, a Boeing 767 weighs 300,000 pounds. Okay, so that would be... It would be the equivalent of hitting that building with about 100 Tomahawk missiles when you consider that that airplane, 300,000 pounds with um, 30,000 gallons of jet fuel in it. You know, that was, that was the biggest conventional missile. Even though it was an airliner, it, it, it's, a, it's a missile. But we were told that the hijackers uh, basically learned to do this by flying in some single-engine planes and then watching some movies. Why would they why would they say that? Why wouldn't they give us a more believable story and say no, they had training. They were they had uh, you know, they used simulators. Maybe they even flew a, fl- a few Boeings. Yeah, well, you know, they you know, they they knew they knew that they went into simulators down in Miami and and one in Arizona. Um and then I believe that they were on a they actually got into real airplanes because at at a certain uh, intelligence community uh, airport just north of Tucson, Arizona. Uh, I did the research on it, and that, that airport had Boeing 757s and 767s parked at that airport okay, at let me the just, very time. Phil, let me take a time out. We'll come back and we'll discuss that when we come back. Phil Marshall, The Big Bamboozle. Stay with us. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio, AM 740. September 11, 2001, the deadliest attack on U.S. soil. 19 hijackers carried out the plot. Nearly all, 15 of them, were from Saudi Arabia. Some say it's more than a coincidence. There is absolutely no question that they were involved. Former Senator Bob Graham co-chaired the Joint Congressional Committee that investigated the attacks. He wrote a book based on the committee's 800-page report, but U.S. security officials stepped in. In that report was one chapter that primarily dealt with the role of the Saudis uh, in 9-11. That was the only chapter in the book that was totally censured. The truth will set you free, but first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Again, this is not conspiracy theory. These are the findings of the Congressional Joint Inquiry led by a former Florida senator, a Republican moderate by the name of Bob Graham. And it, well, what what was um, not redacted certainly clearly shows a connection between the, uh, the Saudi royal family and the 9-11 attackers, or the 9-11 terrorists, rather, 
Uh, but none of that could have happened without complicity from somewhere inside the United States government. Now, is it is does the nine, does the congressional inquiry go so far, uh, Phil, as to indict individuals in the U.S. government uh, for this cover-up, or do they simply hint that there was a cover-up? What what do they say? Um, I know the parts that have been declassified do not go into that. Uh, however, uh, Senator Graham has, you know, vehemently, uh, you know, exposed that the, there was 28 pages that are still classified that go into greater detail. And um, th- those 28 pages, now th- this is a report, this is a congressional report paid for by the taxpayers to get to the bottom of the 9-11 incident. And... Um, the attack. And, um, you know, for, for Dick Cheney to step in there and say, no, I'm sorry, you guys, this is classified. And w- when everyone on that committee was saying that there was nothing, nothing that affected national security, that it was just a total embarrassment, they called it, to the, um, to the, to the Bush administration. Now, let's get back to this, um, this covert airfield that you've concluded was where the terrorists, where the hijackers were trained in simulators. Now, first of all, is it possible, speaking as a veteran airline uh, captain, is it possible for an individual to fly in Boeing simulators undetected? Uh, it'd be very, very difficult. I mean, there, there's contracts, contractors that, that, that uh, rent out Boeing simulators to, you know, potential pilots. Now, I'm not talking about simulators here. I'm talking about actual airplanes that were on the ground at this, uh, this air base um, that's known for covert activity. It, it goes all the way back to the Air America days when they were training in the C-123s. And, um, you know, this airport has a long history of black operations and uh, covert operations being trained out of that airport. So there's a lot of top-secret stuff going on out there. I went out there myself to, to visit that airport one night, and I saw all kinds of Black Hawk helicopters. Uh, I saw C-131s, C-130s, you know, out there practicing, training all throughout the night. So so you've deduced that this, this airfield is where the hijackers uh, learn to fly Boeing's. That's my that's my educated guess. The um, you know at the at the time we had Saudi. We knew we had the Saudi hijackers out there. We had the Saudi uh, intelligence people out there, and we know that there were seven fifty sevens and seven sixty sevens. The same planes that were used in the attack. They were parked at this field. Would they have actually been able to, to, to do a dry run and actually fly, take, take their turn uh, in the captain's chair of a 757 or a 767 while in flight? Absolutely. Absolutely. They could have done that many, many, many times over. And the, the Congressional Joint Inquiry and, and the 9-11 Commission both found that all of the pilot hijackers had made trips you know, in, into the desert um, for, 
from about May until August of uh, 2001, where they would they would land at Las Vegas Airport in the in the desert, and they would disappear for three or four days at a time, and then they would reappear and go back to the East Coast, and that every last one of them was documented to do that. And in the Big Bamboozle, I show you know all of these you know all, all the testimony of the of the FBI director who was who actually mentioned those flights and again it's not possible for example that these hijackers told the people that were training them we're members of the uh, you know we're we're bodyguards for the Saudi royal family they want us to train as pilots why couldn't they have have used that excuse Oh, well, they used that excuse when they were in basic training down in Florida when people were asking them what they were doing, you know, in Florida learning how to fly airplanes. And they, they said that they were Saudi royal family bodyguards learning how to fly airplanes. But when they got out into the desert, um, they, FBI agents were following them around, you know, and, and reporting, hey, you know, these guys are out here, you know, in the desert. They're learning how to fly airplanes. We think they're doing some kind of a terrorist activity. They sent that up. You know, it, that's all documented in the report. This uh, this FBI uh, field agent out of Phoenix uh, reported them. That, I mean, they could have stopped this. They could have stopped the attack probably ten times from the time just on the FBI reporting. You know, through their own channels. All right, we'll take a timeout. Phil Marshall, the Big Bamboozle, stays with us. Back with more. Don't go away. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Hi, it's Pat Finelli from Pizza Pizza. What would you say if I told you you could get two, two topping pizzas for under $9 each, plus we'll give you six free pop? I'm pretty sure you'd say, wow, I'm ordering right now. Two medium pizzas with four toppings combined, plus six free Coke for only $16.99. Great value that saves you money. Only at Pizza Pizza. That's what I'd say. President Bush continuing his trek through the Middle East, he lands in Saudi Arabia this morning, where the government there declared a national holiday in his honor. His warm welcome comes on the coattails of a $20 billion arms deal that the U.S. has pledged for Saudi Arabia. The deal gives Saudi Arabia the right to buy precision-guided missiles from the U.S. Welcome back. Let me crib here quickly from the big bamboozle. From the moment the hijackers arrived on U.S. soil, it is well documented that Saudi intelligence agents and employees of the Saudi Civil Aviation Authority provided housing, obtained driver's licenses, and harbored them. After lying low as a sleeper cell throughout the year 2000, they would be led to intensive flight training in the Arizona desert in December of 2000, which leads to the first plausible explanation of the incredible flying performance demonstrated on 9-11. After submitting an 800-page report to the American public, Moderate U.S. Senator Bob Graham of Florida, the co-chairman of the inquiry, said, quote, There was a direct line between the terrorists and the government of Saudi Arabia. The Saudi government had provided logistical and financial support to at least two of the 9-11 hijackers while they lived in Southern California. 
Graham chronicled that FBI headquarters had responded aggressively to Cheney's request that the FBI investigate the inquiry staff during the investigation, interviewing dozens of members of Congress and their aides. The Bureau suggested it wanted to use polygraphs on some of the lawmakers with the threat of prosecution and jail, of being traitors in a time of war. To, to Graham, the entire experience seemed surreal. So, the, nine, uh, the, uh, the inquiry connects the dots to uh, Saudi intelligence and then goes on to document how, or at least uh, Bob Graham did in his book, how Dick Cheney and the FBI wanted to cover this up. To me, that's pretty much case closed. You don't have to believe in controlled demolition to know that certain elements within the U.S. government working with Saudi intelligence pulled 9-11 off. Uh, Philip Marshall, uh, back to this airfield. Is there a connection between this airfield and Blackwater? Oh, yes. Um, You know, there was an author named Jeremy Scahill who wrote the book Blackwater, and he really chronicled the connections between the uh, the number three man supposedly at, at, at CIA, um, a guy named Buzzy Krongard. Um He was he was the man who was doling out contracts, you know, no bid contracts to to Blackwater on behalf of of us, the taxpayers basically. And uh, he was also the head of of the same investment firm, you know. Uh, he was formerly the head of the, the the same investment firm who placed put option trades, stock trades on two airlines. Only two airlines were were traded in 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 big portions in the week prior to nine eleven, and it was by his firm. And the the only two airlines that they used were American and United Airlines. They 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 um, they they traded stock. They put put options. You know. You know, betting that that the the stock price for United and American would go down. They did not place any other stock options on any other airlines, and that was done through the Chicago Stock Exchange. But how do we know it was Buzzy Krongard? Uh, we don't know that it was from him, but we know that it was from the firm that he once founded. So there is a connection there. Alex Brown Bank was that it? Uh, exactly, Alex mm-hmm. Brown. All right, let's grab some calls. Uh, our good friend, media scientist Nelson Thal, checks in. Hello, Nelson. Good, and uh, talking about 9-11, and I agree, you know, the planes are a distraction. I mean, look at Building 7, right? I mean, what are they going to say there? An invisible plane hit the building? But <laughs> you see the whole situation. But, you know, the real question is, what about the dancing Israelis? I don't think there was just any one, but this is too big for any If anybody knows anything about the intelligence agencies, this is too big an operation for just one. I'm sure the Saudis were involved, but there were a lot well, of we other are focusing involved. on involved. And um, uh, so far, the banned book on the subject, it's also as important as English literature, media scientists, Rich, we should remember, um, Andreas von Bulow's book was banned, and he talked about the CIA and 9-11. So there were lots of agencies involved. And uh, there were dancing Israelis too, and I wonder about what you think about the about the uh, or the the author of this book. Sounds like an interesting book. I haven't read it, but what does he think about the other uh, reports and uh, what brought down Building Seven? I'd be interested in what he found. 
Well, you know the uh, the building seven thing is, is suspicious to me. I'm I, you know I'm not a building expert. My my area of expertise is the airplanes and how they got you know to to where they were on nine eleven. Um, you know I'm not an expert on how buildings come down. Um, but um, as far as the dancing Israelis, you know it. You know I think I think we need to look at that that project for a new American century uh, document real close again, the rebuilding America's defenses. A lot of those guys, Paul Wolfowitz was in there, you know, Donald Rumsfeld, you know, these are all Cheney people and they're all, a lot of them are connected to the APAC, which is, uh, you know, the American Israeli political or, or public action committee is what they call themselves, but they're really just a pack. You know, that, that well, a lot of, as you point out, a lot, a lot of special interest uh, 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 groups, uh, individuals. We need to point out we're talking about individuals here. We don't want to point fingers at uh, uh, at um, uh, uh, countries or, or nationalities. Um, now, as for, as for Building Seven, I mean, when I look at that, that could have been controlled demolition. Would you agree? Uh, you know, I don't like. Like I said, that's way out of my area of expertise. My my area is the airplanes and how right. they got to where they got. All right. Let's uh, say hello to Michael in the beaches. Michael, welcome. Yes. Uh, good evening, uh, uh, Richard and uh, Phil Marshall. Uh, <clears throat> I guess I seem to remember years ago uh, hearing some hijacker uh, being quoted as saying that uh, you know he didn't want to know how to you know start the plane or take off, and he didn't want to know how to land the plane. He just simply wanted to know how to fly the plane. And if that is true, that he allegedly said this, you know, I guess where would he have gotten the trainer, training? And was he one of the hijackers that, uh, you know, died as well? Yeah, now that was in, that was in the, uh, the basic training phases when these guys were learning how to uh, fly smaller airplanes and they, they were getting introduction courses in a Boeing simulator down in uh, Opelika, Florida. I believe that's where the, this incident happened. So they, they, the guy went in there. They're trying to, you know, they're trying to prepare themselves for the for the training that was coming up on the airplanes, I believe. And um, so that when he went into that simulator, he said, well, I don't really need to know how to take off. I just need to know how to fly around. Michael, thank you for the call. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, uh, Prince Turkey El Faisal, another member of the royal family. Uh, again, what, his connection to the uh, the nine eleven uh, hijackers was what? Well, he was he was in the desert, and uh, they they departed Las Vegas. There wasn't anything written up on him until they they started looking into these flights that left uh Las Vegas on September 19th, 20th and I think 22nd um right after the attack and there were three chartered airliners that left Las Vegas back going back to to the kingdom and he was on one of them and there was 100 men with him so he had been in the desert at the same time that the hijackers had been in the desert and and the people who were harboring them. Now it's interesting because some of the the survivors or the families of uh, those killed in the 9/11 attacks, they launched a, a class action suit against Prince Turkey Al Faisal, did they not? That's correct. And 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 what happened with that suit? 
that suit was thrown out because the the federal judge ruled that you know we we can't sue a, a company a, a country who is operating on U.S. soil, <laughs> even though that that is illegal for a, for a foreign intelligence agency to be operating on U.S. soil. And and who was the lawyer for Turkey Al Faisal? Um, well, it came out of. Uh, James Baker's law firm down there, you know, James Baker and, and, and the Bush family are real tight. He was um, chief of staff for, for, for George 41. Exactly. And James Baker and George 41, during the Reagan years, you have concluded, were essentially responsible for the, uh, the Iran-Contra. Exactly, yes. So do you think, then, that... James Baker and George 41 were also involved, along with Dick Cheney, uh, with the Saudi, uh, the Saudi uh, Civil Aviation Authority and, and uh, uh, members of the, the, the Saudi royal family in orchestrating 9-11. Yeah, I mean, I believe that they, this is a long-term plan to take over our government. And I, I wrote about that in my first book uh, that was titled Lakefront Airport. It's not available for sale right now. But it will be soon. Um, but yes, I, I started to make the connect the dots between James Baker, the Bush family, the Saudi family, and um, you know all this before 9/11 even even started. So, would you then conclude that we are what we what we witnessed on 9/11 was a was a coup d'état? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, if you look at what, what has happened to our government since then, um, you know, and, and the big thing is that, you know, our justice system has been railroaded. Um, you know, they, they, they blame that at, at the same time they were training these Saudis, the back channels and CIA were floating this rumor about some, some dark ghost that nobody had ever seen, you know, some, some spooky guy named, you know, Osama bin Laden, you know, you know, boo, and, you know, trying to, trying to, you know, so so they were spreading the through the back channels that this guy was getting ready to attack. So on when when the attack came down, everyone in CIA and everyone in in the intelligence community said, "Oh yeah, we know who's who's going to do who who did this." You know, it's it's this guy Osama bin Laden. And then, but when you look into it, there is no no not one shred of evidence of any involvement in the planning or the execution of the attack. Now, uh, Prince Bandar, it's, it was reported on July 26th, uh, again, the former Saudi ambassador to Washington, that he was assassinated. Uh, what do we know about Prince Bandar's whereabouts? Is he, in fact, dead, or do we know? Well, it's been known for... It, 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 there's been rumored for quite some time that he's, he's got major drug and alcohol problems. Um, and that he'd been in some kind of an asylum or some kind of rehab facility for years, um, and uh, you know it's it's well documented that he has a, has drug and alcohol issues. Um, and for him, he, you know, he, he's been coming and going in the media, 
and I think it's probably just another propaganda ploy. It might be his his plan to escape, just say that oh I'm dead, you know, and and uh, disguise himself and go live on, on an island somewhere for the rest of his life. I don't know. Uh, Phil, when it comes to 9/11, uh, skeptics uh, who suggest there's no way it would have been uh, an inside job. It's even you know odious and and. Uh, disgusting to suggest such a thing and they say so where are the whistleblowers well we've got senator bob graham sort of uh blowing the whistle but where are these fbi field agents who tried to tell their higher-ups that this was going on and they were repeatedly ignored why aren't they speaking out why aren't they more vocal yeah that you know that's a good question you know it would be in a federal trial you know which i have always pushed for you know bring this khalid sheikh mohammed to trial bring these guys up on on a witness stand and let them do it but you know this is a this is what i call a beer bottle cap conspiracy you know you've got all these people down in the middle of the of the bottle that are doing the grunt work the real americans the real people who are who are honest but it, right at the top, they put, you know, they put the director of the FBI in there, and he holds down all that information. So it would be very interesting to get these guys on the stand and, and, and hear what they have to really say. Uh, Philip, uh, job well done with the Big Bamboozle. How can folks get a copy of this book? It's very important that they do. Uh, the book is available on Amazon. We have it on Kindle. It's also all throughout Europe and um, yeah, the UK. We have it on uh, Amazon UK and Amazon Europe, um, so it's available. It's easy to pick up on Amazon. All right, terrific job, and thanks for joining me, Phil. Thank you, uh, Richard, and thank you for uh, keeping this subject alive. It's the least I can do. All right, my man. Thank right. you. Bye bye. You can check information on upcoming shows here on the Conspiracy Show at richardserrett.com. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome, friends. Welcome to the program. I spent my day uh, closing the pool. Uh, although it's not a big pool, it's a wading pool. It still took uh, most of the day to drain that, uh, uh, that puppy and um, get ready for the fall. Uh, man, things uh, up here in... Uh, in uh, southwestern Ontario, it just turned on a dime. Like one day it was balmy and hot and uh, we were contemplating one last run to the beach and then the next day, bam, like an iron curtain. You can just, you can feel fall in the air, right? Okay, listen, I um, spent some time out in uh, Los Angeles and surrounding uh, environs a couple of weeks ago and I met some real interesting uh, individuals. Um, I, I haven't done a lot of shows on Sasquatch. But after meeting my next two guests, I thought it is high time because these two guys are credible, they're knowledgeable, and you really need to hear what they have to say. Uh, we're busy uh, trying to raise one of these gentlemen on the phone right now, but I've got uh, Tom Mozilla uh, with us, so I'll just uh, bring him in right now. Tom's a veteran film and television actor. You've probably uh, you'd recognize his face if you saw if you saw him in the uh, in the in the movies. I know he's uh, also a former Green Beret and Vietnam War veteran, a martial artist, bodyguard to the stars, and uh, likes to spend his spare time with his good uh, buddy Peter Gatilla uh, tracking Bigfoot. Tom, 
Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Okay, great. Thank you uh, for inviting me on the show. Appreciate it. And, and thank you for inviting uh, uh, me and my film crew into your home a couple of weeks back. It was great meeting you in person. Oh, it was great, Richard. Yeah, pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you for coming. Let yeah. me also get the aforementioned Peter Gatilla in here. He's a, he, he refers to him. I love this title. He refers to himself as an, an enigmatologist. He's a veteran Bigfoot field researcher, founder of the Western Society for Exploration of the Unexplained. He's also a freelance writer, an author of several books, including this uh, gem I've got in my hands right now. It's called The Bigfoot Files. Peter, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. I'm I'm your Huckleberry, you know. (laughs) (laughs) It was great meeting you, and thank you for welcoming us. You're a little fuzzy on my phone here. I don't know if that's um, technical. No, I'm like the Bigfoot photos. I guess I'm always fuzzy. Yeah, I'm sorry. You know, I, I'm. Uh, you're a little fuzzy on your end. I, a little hard to hear you. Oh, okay. I was just saying, maybe I'm like all the Bigfoot photos. I'm always a little fuzzy. <laughs> yeah, we'll join the crowd. I mean, that's probably <laughs> why we're talking to each other. There you go. Peter and Tom, uh, either of you jump in here at any moment, but how did you two get together uh, and start tracking mm-hmm. Bigfoot together? Well, uh, I'll head that one off. Uh, you know, when I was in college, uh, there was a professor, Richard Spurney, who was a theologist, and uh, this was back in the early 70s when a lot of people thought uh, CSP and psychic abilities were more associated with just the occult, and certain people were just uh, just gifted with that. But he was a unique individual and really understood that we all have this innate ability and we can just practice it and uh, enhance it like we could anything else. So he put together these five-person teams uh, through a couple of years, and uh, we experimented doing readings for uh, doctors, psychologists, a missing person, police department, all different kinds of things. And then uh, Peter heard about the work that uh, Richard Spurney was doing, and uh, even though he was well-trained in uh, intuition, ESP, they both connected, and they... Peter tried to uh, actually integrate it using groups, you know, sensitive groups to find out some insight to Bigfoot and UFOs. And uh, I was always uh, loved the outdoors and uh, mountain climbing and everything. And I thought, this guy, this would be a, a great challenge and uh, make it interesting. And and uh, and Peter, how did you um, how did you get connected with Tom? I mean, I know it's it's. it's uh, it's the same well, story, he, he but kind but of dropped out of the sky on my head. Actually, <laughs> yeah, we, we, well, yeah. Basically, that's the story. I mean, Tom turned out to be one of the best psychics I've ever known, and I've known a lot of them, you know, over the years. And we got together and started talking about these things, and he was fascinated by my work, which had preceded my contact with Professor Spurney by about ten or twelve years. And so we joined forces. I mean, I said, listen, man, Tom could find literally a needle in a haystack. And, but we go back a long way, and it's, uh, it's the kind of thing that just sort of grows on you, you know. I guess what I, I was said, asking... Uh, let's try to track yeah. unknown or unusual phenomena. And Tom went along with it, and so we've been together ever since. I, I guess <laughs> what I was getting at, uh, Peter, was why... what. Um, led you to believe that uh, a psychic would come in handy in tracking Bigfoot? What was, what was the connection yeah. there? Well, that's the $64 question. Keep in mind, I had been involved in these things for a long time up to that point. 
And it's all very elusive. Sasquatches are very elusive. And I had already bruised my shins on, you know, rocks and rills in every major mountain range in the western U.S. by that time. And I knew there was something in the equation that was missing. You know, the, the hunters were after Bigfoot, the, the uh, aficionados and other enthusiasts, and they were trying every technique known to man. I knew one guy that was carrying a big packet of tranquilizers. <laughs> I mean, I, and, you know, they'd follow the foot tracks and they'd go to the sighting locations, and virtually every time oh, these wonderful creatures would leave them in the lurch. So I got fed up with it, and I said, listen, let's try using, let's try using uh, psychics to see if we can't do what we've done with ordinary things. Now, Tom and I, over the years, we've found missing persons, uh, not always in happy circumstances. We found missing animals. Uh, we knew we could do it. Okay, so let's assume for a moment that Bigfoot was missing. <laughs> okay. And so we got together and started working on techniques that would be exclusive to locating these uh, these creatures. Uh, but also, there's another connection here, uh, Peter and Tom, and that is a number of individuals uh, that have had up-close encounters with, uh, with Sasquatch ascribe a certain psychic ability to these creatures. Explain. Right. Oh, no question about it. I mean, you know, but, but again... Uh, this is a matter of experience. You, you need to go into the field, and you need uh, to be in those circumstances. And you need to have that sort of hands-on kind of thing before you realize some of this. But Tom and I were aware of it a long time ago, as Tom will attest, I'm sure, that these creatures are able to literally outmaneuver just about any tracker under any circumstances, I mean, up to this day, keep in mind, no bone, no billet, no burial plot, nothing. But they're there. We, we know that, and we, I'm sure Tom will agree with me. We both know they're real. <laughs> but what they are, we're still not quite uh, sure of. Tom, when you've been uh, out tracking Bigfoot with Peter, and uh, you've, you've felt their presence, I mean, do you, as someone with psychic ability what are you sensing are you getting telepathic messages uh, what do you sense when these creatures are around well you know where i attribute it to like uh, i practiced and taught karate martial arts for 45 years and you you get a sense of uh, your opponent you know you look in your opponent's eyes and you sense their subconscious mind and uh, you know the eyes of the lamps of the soul and then you know if you take it farther for as being ambushed uh, by ninjas or something, uh, the samurai and uh, warriors and martial arts, you know, you get a sense if there's somebody around that corner, you get a, a feeling of presence just with a human being. Or, uh, you know, I used to teach a, a number of uh, women's self-defense classes. You always want to assume that there's an opponent there or an attacker or robber around this corner when you open this door and get a sense and use your intuition. So um, it's very similar to that. To network that over at a bigger mm -hmm. level, I mean, uh, there's been so many people that have been not just out in the woods, but they felt like there was somebody was watching them, and the hair in the back of their neck would stand up. They just get this this tingly type feeling, and there's some something watching. It could have been a bear, could have been a deer, a wolf, or a mountain lion, or whatever. But uh, it, this has been happening a majority of time with 
creatures after there's been a sighting. They got a sense of something was watching them first, and then they got a glimpse of it at some point. So with myself, you feel that presence. It's just like a, a energy or a sense or feeling, a presence that there's something there. And then, of course, you can feel whether it's negative, positive, aggressive, or passive. You know, that, that uh, kind of articulates a little bit more if you can break it down. And how do you break it down, Tom, when, you, when you've been in close proximity, and we'll discuss some of yours and, and Peter's encounters uh, as the hour progresses, but when you're in close proximity, what kind of vibe are you getting from these creatures? Well, you know, I wouldn't say it's not negative at all, but the most important thing is so darn powerful, the presence. If you could imagine maybe 100 foot away, there's an elephant there, and the aura energy field, the magnetic field of the elephant, I mean, this thing it would be like, oh, Ten times more than that, just like a, a not just a, a physically awesome creature, but their magnetic field and aura and presence is so powerful and almost takes command of the whole area, just being there and not aggressive at all, you know, because they're very passive and very curious and they just kind of come in and out and, and, and take off very quick. Uh, uh, yeah, Peter, let, me, let me interject yes, here yes. just a minute. He is not understating this. I mean, it's so obvious to us and to the people that I've worked with exclusively over the years that it defies comment. I mean, the presence is there, and you can sense it. Tom and I were probably within 20 feet of one in Washington in the early 80s, and Tom will agree with me, that creature just literally, I mean, pressed on the ground. I mean, you could feel it. It was there. I stood about 20 feet from it. Tom was on on guarding my flank, if you will, and I was taken aback. I, I, you know, I was bristling with equipment. <laughs> I had my tape recorder, my camera, everything else, my flashlight. I was ready to go. I was going to plunge into the unknown, and I just stood there like a moron while this creature literally took the whole spot over, and then it shot away from me almost in a cartoonish kind of way. It was so fast, it was hard to to, to grasp what had happened, then it went right past Tom with the same speed. But but he was in the woods, and it literally crackled and chomped through the woods, sounding clumsy in a way, but it was not. It moved so fast that I don't know that you, any any means, any method of preparation would have worked at that time. Now, um, I, I want to get into, uh, uh, you know, some of the, the encounters when we come back. Let me just remind okay. listeners that uh, Tom Mozilla, Peter Gatilla are on the line, two veteran Bigfoot trackers, and you will not believe what they are about to relate. Stay with us here on The Conspiracy Show as we discuss the psychic Sasquatch. Passcodes, personal identification numbers, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario... 1-866-740-4740. Peter Gatilla is with us, an enigmatologist. I love that, Peter. What is an enigmatologist? Yeah, well, I've been trying to figure that out for years. I mean, it, it's really just someone who is an aficionado, an enthusiast, um, who goes after the unexplained. And I've been doing it for many years. I'm basically a journalist, so I want to add it as a, an investigator, if you will. And it includes all aspects of the unknown. Uh, flying saucers, UFOs, ghosties and ghoulies, 
other things that go bump in the night and that sort of thing. I've become well known as a Bigfooter because I wrote a book about it and because I was deeply interested in it from almost the beginning. And I've spent a lot of time doing it, but I've also spent a lot of time looking at other things as well. Tom Muzilla is, as I say, a veteran uh, film and television actor. If you've seen uh, Steven Seagal's uh, action pictures, you've probably spied Tom uh, <clears throat> in those movies. And uh, as I say, former Vietnam War veteran, martial artist, bodyguard to the stars. Now, uh, let's talk about one of your encounters. Peter, you, uh, you mentioned that at one point you were about 20 feet away. Tell us, uh, was this in Washington mm-hmm. State? Give oh, us- yeah, that was, uh, that was a, um, a, a very interesting situation. Well, Tom and I did a lot of exploring, and um, we were all over the country at one time. And in Washington State... Uh, at a place called Snohomish, we uh, spent, I don't know, what was it, Tom? I think about four weeks, yeah, something akin that. to that in the, in the 80s, uh, looking into the uh, sightings and other reports in that area. And there was what was called the Snohomish Screamer. And I was fascinated by that because I had collected um, audio evidence of these creatures uh, for a long time prior to that. And someone contacted me, a journalist up, up there contacted me and said, you know, we got something running around out here that's screaming and terrifying the locals and frightening livestock and all of that. So I was up there in a flash, you know. And so Tom and I were there, and we heard the screamer. Oh, there's been a lot of flack about it over the years because I've shared my data with media and so on, and some researchers and uh, given opinions that it was a screech owl or coyote and all that. That's just abject nonsense. You know? And this creature would scream. It would sound almost like a woman screaming, if you will. Uh, no gender offense intent. But extremely. Uh, and we went up there and we heard it and we went after it, often in the pitch of night. <clears throat> Tom even managed to get arrested. <laughs> I love this guy. He he will go where no man you know, will go about anything. <laughs> well, if you're going to go stomping and, around in the woods, having a former Green Beret is a good guy to have with you. Oh, absolutely. And Tom is everything he purports to be. I can uh, attest to that, believe me. And he was a good man to have with me, and I knew it. He was a mountaineer. He was a paratrooper and feared nothing. And that's what I wanted with me. Um, because there is nothing to fear, really. But, you know, you're in the dark, you're in the woods, you're in faraway places, very remote, and you have to have a certain, you have to have a certain uh, courage to do that. I'll say, yeah. And, you know, there he was, and there we were, and this creature came uh, trudging down uh, one of the trails, and it was close to us. I was in a, an alcove, hunkered down, waiting, and this baby was coming along, screaming its lung, lungs out, mm-hmm. very close. Did you get a good I visual? was on my flank. Did you get he a good visual? to my left, where, where we had pre-planned for him to be, and this creature was getting closer and closer and closer. I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. I didn't want to use any lights or make any noise, so I waited. It got closer and then stopped. Well, at that point, my wits left me, and I dashed into the trail, went around a turn, and all I can tell you, I was 
blithered. I mean, I, I had no idea because there was a black shape in front of me. Keep in mind, it's pitch black. I was bristling with stuff. I had all my equipment with me. But I didn't, I didn't count on, on being that close to something that, with that kind of essence. I mean, Tom is absolutely right. It generates a kind of force field, if you will. So you, no what are you, you're paralyzed? To... You're paralyzed not with fear, but you're just what? Yeah, I mean, well, it wasn't fear. It was a bizarre kind of stunned paralysis. It might have been partly my doing because I had no, one, I had no idea it was that close. And all I can tell you is the feeling was that I was standing next to a mountain. <laughs> I mean, suddenly it was free-flowing. There, you know, the whole, the whole area was, was airy and open and free-flowing, and suddenly there was this block. That's the only way I can describe it. Yeah. I looked forward. I could see a black shadow. It was humanoid in shape, very big, over nine feet. And it was sort of like, oh, Mr. Ed. <laughs> I, and I had to stop, and I just stopped. And the minute I did that, within seconds, it, it kind of leapt or jerked in a way to its right and to my left, and off it went into the woods. And I was, I was still trying to feel my, my legs. <laughs> and it went right past Tom when he was in the location he was to be, and it went past him and went off into the Did you get a visual? Thicket. Did you get a visual, Tom? Yeah, well, uh, I got a visual of this dark you know, massive movement just moving like light speed past me. It was just the, the, the speed is just incredible, <laughs> yeah. like Peter's describing. And the, the stealth, you know, wasn't like loud, like an elephant crashing through the brush. It was just so stealthy and light on its feet. Just, uh, and it moved so fast, this mass and that presence, yeah. Uh, Peter uh, and Tom, you both described to me... Um, uh, um a creature that's known to inhabit uh, the environs around, I believe it's Edwards Air Force Base, and they measured, right. you measured the stride of this creature. Tell me about that creature. Yeah. Well, Tom and I were all over the place, and, you know, I, I went after every report, even every, every hint of a report that came across my desk in those days. And uh, a group of Marines were coming out uh, on a truck. They were coming out of the base. And the, the one we eventually called Big Ben creature, hair-covered, two legs, two arms, two he a head and a body. I almost said two heads. <laughs> that would have added some interesting elements to this. Yeah. Anyway, this creature ran across the highway in front of the truck. The Marines swerved to miss it and rolled the truck. Well, that was among one, among, uh, one of, of several reports from that area. And so we went out there, and the stride, you could find the footprints were fairly plain to see. And at a run, the stride of this creature was 23 feet. And the ground, now, you know, simple arithmetic is all that's required to determine the rate of travel of this giant. And it was mind-boggling. So 23 <laughs> so feet, let's do the math. When it was there, it was gone, and probably within a matter of minutes... It was a long way away. So if it's which traveling, I think is part of the problem with trying to track these creatures, right, is that they move very quickly, and while a certain area might still be recovering from the 
the experience, it's gone, long gone. 23 feet. If, if the stride yeah. is 23 feet, do we? Let's do the math. What, what speed are we talking about? 50 mm-hmm. miles an hour? Did we, no, we estimated what, what about 50 <laughs> miles an hour, something like that. Well, let's just put it this way. Now, keep in mind, Big Ben was that site, that particular sighting, was in the late 1960s. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been a lot of sightings in that area since. But these are relatively unknown to the public. But I found that uh, the experience happened more often than not. Even that there was a special task force, don't quote me, mm-hmm. just let me blast it over the entire universe here. But there was a task force uh, set up by the Air Force to find out what the heck was running around the base, right? And I talked to some of these guys. It wasn't easy. And keep in mind, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool citizen. I, I, I don't really want to mess around with the military, and I don't want to cause any flaps and whatever, which is one of the reasons I published everything I, I do. <laughs> but anyway, these, uh, uh, they, were, they were trying to find out what was going on there. And I talked to several of the personnel, and they were hush-hush, you know. It, they were not supposed to talk about this. And I got a call, as a matter of fact, from a military personnel in 1974, I believe it was, who said, they can't talk to you anymore. I said, oh, really? (laughs) Why not? And the basic message was, uh, these guys are going to lose their their pensions, kind of thing, among other things, if they keep talking to you about this. So I said, okay, I'm not trying to cause any problems. I would never do that. I understand. End of issue. Well, well, Tom, you have a... um obviously an understanding of the uh, the military mindset. Yes, it's a very conservative organization, but I don't understand. Uh, let's say, for example, that this is, th- that Sasquatch is another example of the lowland gorilla, that, that this is simply a, a, a creature that we haven't uh, cataloged or documented yet. What's the harm in, in uh, unless it's something even more extraordinary than that, what's the harm in the military allowing its people to say, hey, I saw Bigfoot? We'll see that, you know, mentality and understanding is when they see something it's either known or not known you know that's why it was right, right. UFO, unidentified flying object so right, exactly. if they can't label it positively authentically no, it's something and it's, it's a problem of credibility from, you know they don't want to come off looking like a bunch of kooks or talking about creatures or Flying saucers or anything else. I could tell you a lot of stories about that. It's going to be in my next book, as a matter of fact. But they're just, it's credibility. It's um, like everything else. I mean, I've talked to a lot of highly educated scientists, for example, who've had sightings and who've had experiences, and they don't want to talk about it. You know, they're things like tenure, tenure and respect of one's peers. And they can't prove it. Uh, This is one of the topics of my book. Basically, we can't prove it. Um, we can suggest it, we can report it, but we can't prove it. And so there, therein lies the so-called rub, you know, about all this. So peop- I have set out to try to prove as much as I can, but it's difficult. And they were caught up in this, in the middle of it. And I think they were just afraid of the impression they were going to leave on the public the flack they were going to get up, get out of upper echelons. I looked into a report where uh, a group of uh, air patrolmen encountered one, 
And at base, all they heard was the, was the gunfire. Well, when they got to the location to investigate what had happened, the patrol car, uh, truck, was turned over. All the rifles had been broken in two. None of the personnel were injured, as far as I remember. I'm pretty sure not. But uh, they were found in a kind of state of uh, structured, uh, you know, inability to function. They just couldn't, you know, I tried interviewing a couple of them myself. And what it boiled down to was, nobody's going to believe us, but this is what had happened. And in the report, tracks were found all around the area that uh, comply with ordinary, if we can call it that, Bigfoot tracks. And nothing else was found. Now, what was interesting about that, I thought it was great. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I found, I, I, you know, I managed to dig up a report that was really exciting. But I couldn't, after that point, I couldn't get anybody to back up any of it. And the group that was involved in the actual encounter had been shipped off to parts unknown. Hmm. Peter Cotilla is with us, you know, the author of The again, Bigfoot I Files. Think part of it is credibility. You know, a lot of scientists have a problem with this and so-called very educated academic types because <clears throat> what, what, what are you going to show anybody? It's all a matter of belief. And even though the reports are exciting in some instances and pretty hard to refute. Exactly, yeah. They're just reluctant to say anything. Let me remind uh, listeners uh, that Peter Gatilla, the author of The Bigfoot Files, is with us. Tom Mozilla, veteran film and television actor and uh, former Green Beret. Tom, l- let me ask you about uh, one of your close encounters uh, in the field with Peter. Uh, it seems to me when I uh, visited you in your home, you were telling me about uh, an incident. Uh, you were in your vehicle uh, oh, yeah. at the time. Yeah. Tell me about that. Okay. Well, uh, Peter and I, we had about three, three vehicles at Bluff Creek there. And uh, not the original site where uh, the Patterson film was about three miles, three miles down at this uh, Laird Meadows, I believe it was. And, uh, you know, it's a little campground, just very isolated area, way back in the deep woods. And I was sleeping in my uh, go-to land cruiser, had a bed in back. And, uh, oh, I don't know, I think it was like three in the morning, two, three in the morning, I started having a dream. And, of course, Peter, I think, was uh, next to us in another vehicle. We had a tent there and had probably four, five or six people with us. And in my dream, I saw this huge creature walking through our campground on the perimeter of it. Tom, let me just interject here because we've got the music percolating up. Let's take a time out. When we come back, we'll find out more about your encounter with Sasquatch. Stay with us. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. 
Welcome back, Peter Gatilla, the Bigfoot Files, and Tom Mozilla, a couple of veteran Bigfoot trackers. Now, Tom, you were uh, regaling us uh, your encounter. You're so you're in your uh, your SUV, sort of on a stakeout out near Bluffs Creek, which is near the site of the original, of course, the famous Patterson film, which is sort of the Bigfoot equivalent of the Zapruder film. The, yeah. One of the most studied piece of film ever was purporting to be uh, having a, a female Sasquatch caught on on film. So you're you're stake you're on a stakeout overnight. You're having a dream that a Sasquatch is walking through your camp, and then what happens? Yes, uh, I'm sleeping in my Toyota Land Cruiser, and I have this dream with this creature in my dream walking through the camp, and then I even hear these footfalls in my dream, and it was so prominent and uh, present, it woke me up. I said, wow, you know, with the colors and vividness and almost like smells and everything, like it was real and sounds. And also when I woke up, I I still heard these footfalls about, oh, I don't know, 40, 50 feet in front of my Jeep. And uh, I saw this huge black shadow presence walking stealthily right across the front of the Jeep. And I go, oh my God! I was, I was just dreaming that. <laughs> so I rolled down the window and opened the door slowly. I heard it kind of go through the brush, and uh, like I said, it was probably just forty, fifty feet. And there's some moonlight, a little bit of moonlight, so I could definitely catch all the, the outline of the creature. I'd say at least nine foot tall. And then after it went through the brush, it, I could hear step a little bit in the creek. And then I heard these weird gibberish sounds coming, something like, and it it was almost like three distinct voices. And I tried to sneak over the walk a little bit stealthily to listen closer. Three distinct voices, almost like communicating with each other. And I sensed the presence of a, like a a big male, a female, and a, a sibling, like three of them. And there were three distinct different kind of, uh, frequency voices to that. So I listened to it for a little bit, and also, boop, took off, we're gone. And then also we smelled that strong uh, uh, sulfur smell that goes along with them, like rotten eggs. Right. Well, and then uh, Peter and everybody woke up, and they caught it, and the presence as as well, you know. (laughs) Oh, I remember it well. I mean, I I practically fell out of the truck. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, you were you were genuinely uh, impressed by it. I, re- I recall the incident, but there were so many of them with us there in that location. But I might point out that that was also the place where the entire modern Bigfoot controversy began. Right. Uh, with a logger by name of Jerry Crew, who was the first to find footprints around his uh, equipment, because at that time that campground wasn't a campground; it was uh, an equipment yard for loggers and. Uh, uh, people putting in roads in that part of the forest. And there was a history there all along. And most of us who were involved in those early days were convinced that something had happened there originally. Uh, we've been debating Patterson's film for a long time. But we did uh, we did have several experiences right at the Patterson location. So there's little doubt in our minds that there was something there. Whether or not Patterson actually filmed it or not remains moot, but there was something there in the early days, and I don't know, what when was it, Tom? I think in the 80s was the last time we were there, the 90s. Yeah. Um, and you could still feel the essence of things there. That's a very interesting place. 
Yeah, it, I mean, that seems to be ground zero, like a real hot spot. Now, Tom, did you yeah. not have the, the Patterson film subjected to some sort of analysis with some very interesting findings? Yes, I mean, as you know, so many have, and uh, Peter's seen it, and uh, I had this uh, good friend of mine, Bruce Bonney, and he was kind of a very scientific researcher analyzing it, and uh, we found this, uh, there was an institute down in Southern California, Orange County, called uh, Cota de Casa, with this uh, top biomechanics kinesiology scientist, uh, Gideon Ariel, Israeli scientist, and a lot of the Olympic athletes would go there when they had some flaw, and it was all computerized. They'd hook up uh, uh, all these different uh, wires on them. They'd transfer that over to a monitor, and these different sensors they'd run on, and they'd analyze it where he's... Uh, losing some uh, momentum or energy or something, and they'd reprogram the athlete, and they'd go off and break a world record or whatever. So he was an expert at analyzing these films, and he ran it on this uh, really uh, high-definition type camera, slow-motion camera, uh, projector, excuse me. And it was interesting, stuff I had never seen before, too, because that was pretty soft sand, and the gait that the creature had was very much more like a human gait. And, but when it stepped in the sand, it would have such power, it propelled itself out very uh, plyometrically, explosively, where a, a human wouldn't have that kind of ratio power to step mm. that way. So, oh, I know it, we've been there many times. I mean, one thing that we noticed, too, was that the sand is a very talc-like in some of those places on that sandbar. And when we walked on it, we noticed, especially if we'd walked in the creek, that'll, the sand would adhere to the bottoms of our feet. Okay, Peter, i got to take a time out, so uh, just oh, uh, stay with us. Uh, we'll be back in a minute. Uh, okay. Tom Muzilla, Peter Gatilla, Bigfoot Trackers here on The Conspiracy Show. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides, you're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And we're continuing to uh, delve into uh, the, um, well, I don't want to call it the legend of Sasquatch because I think there's just too much uh, darn uh, evidence that there's something stomping around out there in the woods uh, and it's real. The question is, what is it? Let me uh, let me get uh, uh, Peter Gatilla, Tom Mozilla back in here, two Bigfoot trackers. Uh, Peter, l- let's just uh, cut to the, the quick here. What, what do you think this creature is? Well, that's the $64 question. You know, I mean... I've been at it a long time, longer than I care to admit. And my conclusion is that they're real, they exist, they're there, they're not uh, a threat in any way. Leave your guns at home, (laughs) or take them out there if you're afraid of bears or something, but uh, never use one on a Sasquatch. But they're there. Uh, We just don't know what they are. Are we I mean, dealing with one? Are we dealing with one type of creature? Many types of uh, uh, no. Creatures? Actually, we're dealing with a lot of them. I mean, they're all over the country, and they've been around a long time. The reports go back, um, you know, decades and longer. And they're there. They leave behind evidence of their presence. They interact with the environment. They're uh, harmless. Uh, I have one in the mountains behind my house, and I've tracked. And I've tried to track, but remember, no one has ever successfully tracked a Sasquatch to completion. No bones, no billets, boneyards, or graves of any kind have been found. Tom, what do you think it is? 
You know, uh, like Peter, I mean, we try to keep our minds open. I mean, the sightings kind of occur in three different categories. I mean, one is like a physical beast, the presence of. One is still kind of physical, but very uh, intuitive and uh, very psychic. And then there's this third type, which uh, Peter brought, was the first one to bring this up years ago, closely associated to UFOs. And whether they have a, a similar-looking creature or they're using these creatures, it's, you know, we don't know. We're still trying to do that. But this third type has, like, three big toes and kind of like red glowing eyes on a certain occasions, too. But uh, the interesting part is the, the psychic and intuitive part because uh, they probably know, and like Peter's mentioning and hearing about weapons, it's interesting most of the time anybody carries weapons there there's no activity nothing happens whatsoever and uh it's almost like intuitively they pick up on that presence or that aggressiveness and just don't come around so uh you know there's these two different legends i mentioned before when we talked you know this old ancient hopi indian reservation american indian and an old ancient chinese legend and these are myths, of course, but we don't know. It's similar on two different continents. They refer to these creatures that at one time were very abundant on the planet and maybe almost like defied God or got too powerful or something, and God reprimanded them and his folklore, and they're almost like uh, sentinels of the planet. Now, whether that's physically or like apparitions or entity, I, I don't know. We, you know, Peter and I, we're still trying to... Yeah, we've been around in circles with this for a long time. You know, I'll tell you a little interesting story, and it's about the the Shivapuri Baba. This was a a mendicant and hermit that occupied this Shivapuri forest in India. And I happen to know a couple of representatives, uh, representatives of the United Nations, who were gathered there for a, uh, a kind of convention. And it just so happened that this little mendicant monk would stagger out of the woods and say something profound and then stagger back into the woods, right? And so they were all gathered, and there were some diplomats and others present. And the little guy shows up, perches himself on a small boulder, and begins to talk about the universe, that part I would have I would have liked a lot, but anyway, what happened was is right above his head on a ledge appears a Sasquatch or a Bigfoot, whatever you choose to call it, and he looked around. He said, "Not to worry, not to worry. These are the protectors of the forest." And I thought that was extremely interesting. I'm not at liberty to mention names. If anyone wants to talk to me about these things privately, send me an email. But it so happened that it was really stunning to all these people. And yet it was there. It turned casually and walked off. And this guru, yogi, smiled. Not to worry. <laughs> now, we've heard this before from Native Americans. We've heard it from natives in Canada and natives in Mexico that they, these creatures are the protectors, the guardians, if you will, of the wilderness. And none of them like the idea of us white eyes trying to capture them. 
Well, uh, Tom and, and Peter, both of you, I believe, have interviewed, um, uh, uh, I believe it was a Native American medicine woman. And uh, did she not describe that, that uh, you know, her forefathers used to trade with yes, Sasquatch? Yes, uh, she was like the, uh, when I lived in Northern California by Lake Shasta, in Mount Shasta, she was considered the last of the Wintu uh, Indians, but she was also a shaman. And uh, she used to say, you know, when by the campfire when she was a young girl, the uh, elders would all talk about Sasquatch like it was just another tribe, oh, the big hairy tribe, and they just took it for granted, and they'd get along with like any other tribe. And they had certain trading, they'd trade tobacco, they'd trade certain things and food with the creatures, and, you know, the creatures would leave them alone, and they'd almost kind of uh, protect them in a way. And uh, she even mentioned, I don't know how true this is, but she mentioned that she thought a couple of uh, geologists or something, or anthropologists came to camp once, and they brought a, a bone, a huge bone. Well, whether it was a Sasquatch or some giant or whatever, uh, it was like a thigh bone, and there was a skull, I think, too, and asked them, uh, Do you, have you seen anything like this before? So, and of course, they said, no, and they talked about the Sasquatch, though. But, uh, you know, I don't know whatever happened to them or who they were or anything. She just mentioned it casually because it's probably early 1900s. Yeah. Now, you know, th- these stories are incredible, obviously. Uh, but it gets even more incredible. I, I, you, almost, you almost want to not bring it up because it... it for some, you might lose the room. However, we do have reports of Sasquatch in close proximity to UFOs. What are we to make of that? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm your Huckleberry. I'm the guy who started most of that, and it started with a series of articles I wrote for Saga magazine in the early 70s. And I was, at the time, I was an associate of Stanton Friedman. Danton T. Friedman, the uh, physicist and ufologist, good friend of mine, going way back. And we, at the time, had founded the UFO Research Institute, which was then in Lawndale, California. And Friedman was a scientist, and he had worked on all sorts of interesting projects, both for the government and not. And we started collecting uh, reports from very reliable sources from all over the country. A lot of them were scientists uh, themselves. He was, in fact, a good friend of J. Allen Hynek, who was the, you know, the granddaddy of the UFO subject in the United States. And uh, so we, I, I was there with him. I edited the newsletter and uh, talked to witnesses who would call the Institute and that sort of thing. And we started collecting a huge number of clippings, news clippings, and other reports from around the country. Well, I noticed something odd. I noticed that wherever there were low-level UFO reports, people started talking about seeing a giant, hair-covered, human-like being in the vicinity. And in many cases, footprints were found that looked very much like the standard Bigfoot footprints found in the usual Bigfoot locations, right? So I turned to Friedman and I said, you know, this is strange. It seems there, there might be a connection between these two phenomena. So Stan looks at me and he says, don't bother me with another mystery. I got my hands full with one. You know? Actually, that's a pretty good impression of uh, Stanton. That's exactly the way he sounds. Yeah. So I just took, upon myself, I took it upon myself to continue uh, gathering up this information. 
I wrote a few articles about it. I did a few lectures about it. I talked to ordinary folk and professionals alike about it. And, of course, there was no, you know, it's it's one thing to prove the existence of one strange thing and try to bring them together and prove both is a double jeopardy, you know. But I never lost my interest in that, and it's true. Uh, they do seem to have some sort of proximal relationship. Now, what that is, again, is anybody's guess, and I defy any researcher or any expert to prove otherwise. You, we just don't know. But, you know, the field is open. Be open-minded, as Tom suggests. And broaden your horizons. There, there are all sorts of possibilities with these things. Did now, Peter? This is a tough question, but did, does part of you, when you when you're looking at that connection, say, you know what? I'm just going to keep this one under my hat because I'm going to lose the room. I mean, it's hard enough to convince the majority of people that Sasquatch is out there, <laughs> given the yeah, anecdotal right. evidence, and then and then you add this other layer, and and people are saying all of a sudden, okay, now you've lost me. You know, exactly. I hear, I've heard that all the time. And, you know, I'll tell you something, Richard. Frankly, I don't care. I've been at it a long time, more years than I care to admit. And I, you know, and believe me or not, care or not, I couldn't care less. I'm not, I'm not uh, competing with these people. Some... I've got proof of what I'm talking about. I just wrote a book about one of your fellow Canadians, Dorothy Wilkinson Isaac. Now, she's got more accumulated photographic evidence to prove the presence of than any other person in of record in the annals of the paranormal. Hmm. So uh, someday, if you'd like to talk about that, I'd be happy to. I wrote a book about it called Beings of Light, uh, the amazing true story of Dorothy Wilkinson Isaac. We'll definitely do a show. Uh, she's got more accumulated. She's got 35,000 feet of, of film live-action movie film, and you can't deny it. But I have people laughing in my face. I have people that I've shown my huge collection of evidence for Dorothy Isaac. They look, they smile, and they disappear. They're not moved, they're not interested, blah, 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 blah. Same thing happens with Bigfoot. They don't care. They're not interested. It's not relevant. What the deuce does it matter to me, you know? Tom, uh, when are you and Peter getting uh, ready to uh, hit the road again and in, 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 uh, on another expedition in search of Bigfoot? Uh, you know, we're working on that now, just trying to uh, collaborate schedules and everything. But uh, you don't want to bring up something else, Richard, would, to take it beyond what Peter's saying in a way. What's real interesting, uh, Earth has certain electromagnetic lines, like ley lines, telluric lines, right? And... Uh, you know, as you know, a lot of the churches were built on these lines in England, and it enhances the electromagnetic field for meditation, for a sacred atmosphere, and even with the pyramids and all, the Petra. If you go all around these different cultures, you know, there's been studies of this. They've been built on these lines. And now, a lot you know, of times where these telluric lead lines, magnetic lines, intercross, it almost like warps time and space a little bit and what's interesting a lot of the ufo <laughs> and big <laughs> you know tom let me interrupt you for a second no, i i gotta i, I apologize but paper. i gotta i gotta interrupt you both because i'm oh, out okay. of time i'm out of time gentlemen but listen it just means we got to get together and do another show okay okay tom mozilla peter gatilla thank you so much peter's book is the bigfoot files our pleasure for being here thank you thank you yeah, for talking you. to you both all right back next week we hope with another great show. In the meantime, don't be afraid. See you then.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.